Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to talk about conversion this morning. The title of the sermon is A Compelling or actually it's a convincing conversion. I went back and forth between those two options. A convincing conversion. You ever notice that there are some people who just simply refuse to convert? I moved to Texas in the year 2000, a Pittsburgh Steeler fan. And in 2016, I am still a Pittsburgh Steeler fan. I simply refuse to convert. I could live in the Jerry Dome and I would not convert. There are just people like that. I mean, you just have to accept reality. Every once in a while, Blair Cushman will say something ridiculous about the Milwaukee Bucks. Blair is from Wisconsin, and just the other day, the Milwaukee Bucks were the first team to beat the Golden State Warriors in NBA. And Blair said, because the Milwaukee Bucks beat the Warriors, therefore the Bucks are the best team in the NBA. See what I mean? Isn't that kind of ridiculous? He simply refuses to convert to the Spurs. If he did convert, he might wear their T-shirt. He might learn something of their history. He would even watch a game every now and then. And if he converted to the San Antonio Spurs, he would know that they are the best team no matter what happens. He He would know that. But he refuses to convert. And now on to more serious matters in relationship to this idea of conversion. Tomorrow is my spiritual birthday. Tomorrow I will be 30 years in the Lord. 30 years ago tomorrow, God by His grace and His Holy Spirit found this 20-year-old college student in an upstairs lobby of Henry Horton State Park in Middle Tennessee, where I bowed my head and confessed my sins and asked Jesus to save me. And I praise God for that moment. Here we are now, 30 years later, and I'm still running because I started running. 30 years later, I'm still walking the walk of faith because I started the walk of faith. 30 years later, I'm still fighting. I'm still fighting. Because I started fighting. I'm still repenting and I'm still believing because like every believer, I repented and I believed. There's a continuation because there was a start. And I did all of that because God did and began a good work in me. You see, like all conversions to Christ, mine was a convincing conversion. Some are more sudden than others. Some are more outwardly dramatic than others. Some occur early in life. Some seem to occur late in life. But beloved, all conversions are convincing conversions. Because all conversions are the good work of God in the heart of a man or woman, boy or girl. 
Look at verses 9 and 10 with me of 1 Thessalonians 1 as we read about some very compelling, convincing conversions from the first century. Paul writes in verse 9, For they themselves, he's referring to other Christians and other churches in the region, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. A very simple outline for you this morning. I want to talk about conversions under two headings. First of all, what conversion is And then secondly, what conversion leads to. What conversion is and what conversion leads to. And so we begin with the basic description or definition of conversion right from this passage. He says of these Thessalonian believers, how you turned to God from idols. That's it. That's a description of conversion. It is to turn to God, the living God, the true God, as he goes on to describe, and to turn away from idols. It is the idea of repenting and believing, of of, of 180, of a turnaround, of a U-turn, going one direction, believing one thing, desiring one thing, seeking one thing, and doing a 180 to begin to live and desire and believe In an opposite direction. They turn to God from idols. If you've been with us in this study, you know how they loved their idols. How they served them and feared them and were devoted to their idols. These people, before they heard the gospel, gave their time to the service of idols. They gave money to the service of idols. They worshipped them. They gave them their attention and their prayers. They were very spiritual people. They were very religious people. They were just as lost as a goose. They had over 20 gods and goddesses in their culture and in their religion of whom they served and whom they worshipped. They had a god or goddess for every moment of uncertainty in life. They had a god or goddess they could turn to for every situation and circumstance of life. Whether it was warfare, politics, crops, fertility, rain, drought, Whatever was going on in their personal life, corporate life, community life, they had a God they could turn to in prayer and worship. And they did. They did. Sometimes I think it's easy for us, if we've been in the Lord for a long time, to forget what God does in conversion. To forget what He does for sinners and setting us free from sin. Sometimes we get in our Christian circle so tightly, so closely, that we even really lose sight of what a, a really lost and sinful life looks like. Let me read for you what I believe it would be an accurate description of these Thessalonian believers, many of them, before they were converted. I think this is what they were like. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That would have been a description of the culture and climate in Thessalonica. Those were the kind of people that heard the gospel and turned to God from idols. What a glorious thing that had to have been. They converted to Christ when they heard the gospel. And beloved, what does that tell us? That tells us that people can change. People can change by the power of God. Listen, to and from is conversion. To and from describes it. And to and from are two wings. Isaiah, can we turn this down a little bit? I feel like I'm getting really loud. <laughs> do y'all agree? Is it just me? To and from are, the, are two wings of the same bird. The bird is conversion. One wing is faith and the other wing is repentance. It is on the wings of repentance and faith that we fly to heaven. That is what Paul is describing here happened among these people. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But this faith is never alone. It's twin sister that walks hand in hand with it all through life is repentance or turning Changing of your heart and mind is the definition of repentance. It is to change your mind and it leads to a change in beliefs and a change in behavior. The change in behavior that repentance leads to is not technically the repentance. It's the fruit of repentance. It is the fruit of repentance that always is the result of this change of mind, change of heart. We learn in Second Timothy that God actually grants repentance. It comes from his grace. 
And so these folks then, immersed in, in, idol, in idolatry and pagan religions, they turned from fantasy to reality. And when they turned to God from idols, they were turning away from a life of make-believe and a life of fantasy and a life of deception to what was actually reality, truth. They turned from a hundred deceptions to one true deity. They turned from cursed, dead idols to a living and true God. Do you see that in the verse? You turn to God to serve a living and true God in contrast to your dead and false idols of this world. And I would say, so have many of us. We might not have been in a temple worshiping a statue, but we were worshiping and living for something or someone that we loved more than we loved God. And so conversions, by definition, are a turning from idolatry of the human heart to the one true God. The great Swiss reformer John Calvin gave a lot of thought to idolatry in his day because the Roman Catholic Church dominated the land. And, and, and in his mind and in his view and the view of the reformers, it was a system of idolatry. And so he gave lots of thought to that issue. And he came up with this famous quote that's been repeated often. He said, the human heart is an idol factory. The human heart is a factory, a manufacturing center of one kind of idol after another, after another, after another. They may not be something we can touch and see. They may not be tangible, but it is anything and everything that we set up in our hearts in the place of God. Anything and everything that's more important to us than God, that we love more than God, that we honor more than God, that we desire more than God. That then becomes the, the thing of our life that we live for. Calvin went on to say this. He said, for although all do not worship idols, all are nevertheless addicted to idolatry and are immersed in blindness and madness, end quote. So as, as you look out over the lost world, and if we think back to where we were to where we were, this is an apt description, addicted to idolatry and immersed in blindness and madness. We could not see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We could not see the truth. We lived as if we were crazy. We were mad because we were seeking and running after broken, dry cisterns that can hold no water, drinking deeply from them for satisfaction and fulfillment. And that is insanity. And over and over and over again, we have the same experience and the same lack of fulfillment and the same lack of purpose and the same guilt and the same lostness. And we kept going back again and again like a dog to its vomit. And that is insanity. We were caught up in blindness and madness. And it is conversion that brings correction to that life. We must turn from something and to God. Even if you were raised in Judaism, like some of Paul's audience in Thessalonica, who were not idol worshipers, that the Jews had been cured of that, at least outwardly. Or even if today you're raised in the church, you're brought up in a, in a church like this from day one. All you've ever known is about the one true God and, and you've known about the gospel. The reality is still the same for all people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
all are by nature still sinful at heart. In other words, if we think correctly about a theology of conversion, we recognize that none of us are neutral when we convert to Christ. We are not starting from a place of neutrality when it comes to sin and when it comes to God. In fact, we love sin and we hate God. We pursue sin and we're enemies of God. We are not a neutral nation in this in this warfare. In other words, beloved, we can say very safely from the authority of the word of God, all people need conversion. Whereas Jesus said, ye must be born again. You cannot turn to God then without turning from idols. Idols take all kinds of different shapes and forms. They can be clothes, shoes, food, movies, sexual pleasure, drunkenness, money, job, family, kids, your spouse, preaching, ministry, church. Any of these things can become more important than God himself. We cannot convert then unless we turn to God from idols and vice versa. You can't truly turn from idolatry without turning to God. You can't turn from sin without turning to God. A lot of people try to do that. And it's just reformation. It's not regeneration. A lot of people turn away from one sin and simply replace it with another sin. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer an addict to this, but now I'm an addict to pride. I'm an addict to self-righteousness. What have you? In other words, we're not coming at this from a blank slate. We don't come to Christ with an open mind. We don't come to Christ with a good heart. None of those things would be true. To say I was a good person, happy, fulfilled, then I heard about God and I turned to him is not a testimony of conversion to Christ. It's not. In conversion, God isn't merely added to your life. God becomes your life through Jesus Christ. God becomes your life. Conversion is not a band-aid that we stick on our mistakes. Conversion is open heart surgery where that hard chest bone is sawed in half. And the Holy Spirit cracks open your chest cavity to do heart surgery at the deepest level. And we turn from idolatry to the living and true God. We make a 180. Now, I know this is low hanging fruit. The illustration I'm about to use. I know this is a softball lob for every preacher in the land. But what I'm not talking about is a Donald Trump kind of conversion. I know low hanging fruit. Too easy, right? Here's what Donald Trump said when he was asked if he had ever asked God for forgiveness of his sins. Which, by the way, is right. Well, what part and parcel of the conversion experience, right? Asking God to forgive you for your sins. Here's what he said. He said, I am not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so. I think if I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. 
Now, months later, CNN was in an interview with him, and I think they were trying to let him maybe find his way out of this, you know, and, 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 and recant a little bit. And so they asked him, did he ever, has he regretted never asking God for forgiveness? Partially because he says, uh, and he says he does not regret it. He does not regret it, given another chance months later. Partially because he says he does, doesn't have much to apologize for. <laughs> Quote, I have a great relationship with God. I have a great relationship with the evangelicals. By the way, they're not one in the same, okay? <laughs> I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. And I am good. I don't do a lot of things that are bad. I tried to do nothing that is bad, end quote. So I'm not talking about that kind of conversion. That's what I would call a con conversion, not a convincing conversion. A convincing conversion is evidence of the standalone power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where you will find conversions. If you don't have the gospel, you don't have conversions. You have religion. You have self-righteousness. You have someone that doesn't think they have anything to ask God to forgive them for. But where you have the standalone power of the gospel brought by the power of the Holy Spirit, like it was in Thessalonica, you have convincing conversions, not con conversions. You see, conversion to Christ is not just lip service to God or to Christ. That's a con. It's not a fleeting emotional experience. That's a contrived conversion. It's not going through some church or denominational motion. That's a consumer conversion. These folks in Thessalonica didn't pray some prayer and then go home and polish their statue to Zeus. They kicked the statue out of their house. It was a convincing, compelling, attractive conversion. This is not a go to the temple of Aphrodite on Saturday night. And then go to church on Sunday morning kind of conversion. They kissed Aphrodite goodbye. This is not I go to church because it's the South and it's a cultural thing to do kind of conversion. This is I go to church to worship God, to be with God's people, to hear God's word, to become a better Christian conversion. You see, in conversion, as Jesus Instructed Paul with his mission in conversion, we actually turn from darkness to light and we turn from the dominion of Satan to God. That's Acts 26. He said, Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. Satan is real. Satan is our enemy. He holds every unbeliever in his clutches. He blinds them, he deceives them, he lies to them. And that takes many, many different forms. It may be the heroin addict out on the streets that just is everything about that person's appearance and, 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 and life is repulsive. Or it may be a person dressed up in a suit in church on Sunday morning. The devil keeps people deceived as to their need for Christ, the, the gift of salvation that he offers. And the command of Jesus Christ to turn from your idolatry and turn to God. To serve a living and true God. 
That brings us to the second heading of our message this morning. What does conversion lead to? What are the results of a true and proper conversion? The evidence, the the outcome, the the result. Look back at the verse with me. He says how you turned to God from idols. Number one result to serve a living and true God. Number two, and to wait for his son from heaven. whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Those are two very basic, very simple, very easy to understand and obvious results of a true and proper conversion. I said earlier, I'm from Tennessee, back there in Tennessee, at least where I was from, we got about 50 inches of rain a year. Droughts happened, but they were unusual. No one had sprinklers <laughs> in their yards. Just the opposite. I mean, you would laugh at somebody who would fertilize their grass. What are you thinking? You're going to be mowing it every week as it is. Now you're going to be mowing it twice a week. Rain was plentiful, but not so much here. 30 inches a year here. But often we have droughts. It's kind of feast or famine. And I've been trying to evaluate that, you know, from a gratitude standpoint. And I'm growing more and more grateful for how God does things here because it actually produces some more dependence on him. When we think about rain. One of the benefits of our frequent dry spells in this part of the country is to watch that grass turn green almost before your eyes when we get a good rain. Oh, what a beautiful thing that is to behold. So it is when God's grace rains down upon a hard, dried out heart with the gospel. To watch that life turn green. To see the results of a true and proper conversion. Paul, as I've pointed out, highlights two of them for us to see. Two of them. And they're in a certain order that is important for us. To notice the first result then of conversion is simply this. We become continual slaves of God. All of these verbs are in present tense, continual action. You turn to God from idols to continually, regularly serve, slave. Literally, it's the word we get doulos from, a bond slave, to slave a living and true God. We become subject to God for the first time in our lives. We become those who are in service to God instead of these dead idols. Do you see it? Do you see the order here? Conversion then leads to submission. Only conversion leads a person to be subject to and submitted to the living God. This is consistent with Paul's theology of conversion, his theology of the gospel. He said in Romans 6, he he said about the Roman believers there, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. He's referring to the gospel. You became obedient to the gospel. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Servants of righteousness. He goes on in verse 22 of Romans 6. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, 
And the outcome, eternal life. The outcome, eternal life. So this is a a, a pattern here that is repeated every time there's a conversion. A person begins to serve God. Notice that the order here is essential. We must first be converted to God before we can truly serve God or submit ourselves to Him. Any service to God, any submission to God apart from conversion to Christ is nothing but feigned submission. It is fake submission. It is pretend submission, hypocritical submission, misguided submission. There are all kinds of religious submitted to God people in the world. The world is filled with them and they don't have conversion. And so it's all just a misguided ruse, a pretend. You realize this is one of the key differences between Islam and Christianity. Islam is a religion of submission. Christianity is a religion of conversion. Conversion must come before submission. Submission is the result of conversion. Submission and subjection to God is the fruit of conversion to Christ. But not in Islam because they know nothing of conversion. They know nothing of heart change. They know nothing of forgiveness. They know nothing of brokenness crying out to a holy God. All they know is that there is one God. He is supreme. His will is arbitrary. And if you want to have any chance with him, you better be in submission. 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 All about their their whole religion, their evangelism, the way they treat women. Everything about their religion is submission. Submission. Christianity is conversion. Conversion. New person. New creature. New creature in Christ Jesus. Sets it apart. One of the major differences. Obviously, there are many, many others. Don't be fooled then by religious submission and assume that that equates to conversion. The second result of conversion is verse 10. Not only do we start serving God in a continual way with our life, and that takes many, many forms. But look at verse 10. Here's what else happens. We start waiting for his son from heaven. A converted person starts waiting for Jesus' return from heaven. Again, this reminds us or it implies to us that when Paul preached the gospel, he included the return of Christ. That the very message itself included, he came once, he's coming again. Once for salvation, again for judgment. Be ready. Be ready because your Savior is going to come from heaven. And so these new believers started waiting for it. This literally means to await one whose coming is expected. To await one whose coming is expected. I remember this in my childhood days. Because of all that rain back there in Tennessee, we had lots of rivers and lots of lakes. And one of the things we did growing up on a regular basis, is go out on the lake skiing. So it's a hot summer day, 90-90. You know, we had 90-90 days in Tennessee, 90 degrees and 90% humidity. And I would be eagerly waiting for my dad to cut out early from his shop and to come home and to take us out on the boat to the lake. This is a regular summer occurrence. He wanted to get out of the heat as much as we wanted to play and have fun. 
And we might get a phone call and we were told, I, I, I'm going to be coming home soon. Shortly was always his phrase. I'm coming shortly. And he never really defined that. It never got hours. It never was precise. It was just shortly. And, uh, and so we would start the waiting. We get on our swimming trunks. We get on our flip flops. We get our towels. We are ready to go to the lake. And then we start going to the, to the sliding glass door, pull back the curtain where we could see, where we could see down the road if he's coming. Is he coming yet? He's like, coming. So we go, okay, is he coming yet? Is he coming? Because we are eagerly, eagerly waiting. A few years later, I was eagerly waiting to drive a car. We had a driveway that had a big open area for a basketball court and then a long driveway. And so I'd go out in the driveway and just go back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> Eagerly waiting until I turned 16 and go first one at the end line the day of my 16th birthday to get that driver's license. And then a few years later, I was eagerly waiting for an eternal six month engagement period to pass so I could marry Kim Duncan and make her Kim McKnight. And that six months seemed to last forever. And some folks are eagerly waiting for retirement to come. My, my brother kind of is. He was here recently and he's married and his wife is named Nancy. And he said, uh, he said, you've heard of the Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar. He said, we've got the Nancyrian calendar. He said, we have count, we're counting the days until I retire. And it was like 2000. I mean, it was some huge number, you know, and they're calling it the Nancyrian calendar. When we are converted to Christ, very soon, if not right away, we begin to eagerly wait to see Him. We long to see Him face to face. I can remember this to my earliest days, conversion. I didn't know all the details of eschatology. It didn't matter. All I knew is I want to see the man who died for me. I want to see Him face to face. And then you learn more what the Bible says about that. You see, as believers, we need to imitate Paul. Paul said our citizenship is in heaven. Reminder, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, only a true and proper conversion brings this about. I've never met an unbeliever who talks about the return of Christ. I've never met an unbeliever who longs for the return of Christ, who's eager for the return of Christ. We can debate the details of that return and the timing of the rapture and the tribulation and all those things. But we can't debate whether he's coming back. That's plain as day. That's all in the Bible, all over the Bible. And I have never met someone who was either an unbeliever or a Christian that didn't really live a Christian life that talked about and was eager for the return of Christ. This is a mark that sets us apart We wait for His Son from heaven. We talk about it. We pray about it. We think about it. We wait on it. A true and proper conversion brings this about. And I would say this is the most important waiting that we will ever do. Therefore, it should be the most eager. It should be the most eager. Look at this text. This is glorious. When I first read it, I didn't have any idea why Paul mentioned this. We wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. May I remind you this morning that we are not waiting on a dead man. And we're not waiting on a resurrection. We're waiting on a return. And we believe he is returning because he is alive. That's why he mentions it. We wouldn't wait if he wasn't alive. The resurrection is the foundation. 
our waiting on Christ to return from heaven is rooted and grounded in his resurrection from the dead. We are waiting on a return, but we're not just waiting on a return. We're waiting on a rescue. Do you see that? The word is deliverer or rescuer. We're waiting on one who will rescue us from the wrath to come. He will come from heaven and literally this word rescue means he will draw us to himself. That's what the word rescue means. I hope you're not waiting on the next president to rescue you. I hope you're waiting on the only Savior, Jesus Christ, to come from heaven and rescue you. What we set forth and vote on is a sinner. Many cases they're lost. And even if they're Christians, doesn't mean they're going to make a great president. The one we wait on is the one who's going to come back as prophesied in Psalm 2. Who's promised here in First Thessalonians. Do you see it then? The result of our conversion is serving and waiting. Serving and waiting. Serving and waiting. Have I not just summed up the Christian life? What is the Christian life? Serving and waiting. Serving and waiting. You know, a lot of life involves waiting, doesn't it? Stoplights, traffic jams, doctor's offices. We wait to graduate. We wait to get married. We wait to retire. We're waiting to get over some illness, some injury. A lot of life involves waiting. God would say to us, don't just sit there and wait. Work while you wait. Find something and be productive while you wait. That's the message here of these Thessalonians believers. That's the example they set. They were working while they were waiting. They were serving God, slaving God as his prized children, bought by the blood of Christ, delighted to serve him as a new master, a kind master, a good master, a truthful master, a living master. And they were waiting for the master to send his son. There's a connection here. We need to work while we wait. There's a deeper connection here between serving and waiting. And the reason they're in this order Beloved, our service is energized and sustained by our waiting. It is only to the degree that we are eagerly waiting for the return of Christ that we will serve God as we ought to. That we will serve God with boldness, with a sense of urgency, setting our mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. We will only properly slave God as we believe his promise to send his son. Or to pull back to the earlier parts of this chapter. Steadfastness of hope walks hand in hand with work of faith. They walk hand in hand. And in fact, sometimes it is the hope that is dragging the work of faith along. Come on. Come on. He's coming. He's coming again. He's going to return. Kerbal Bible Church, can we serve God this week and wait on Jesus while we work?